0: Welcome to episode 51 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. On this episode, we're talking about being a senior engineer. When you first become a senior engineer, you suddenly have new job responsibilities that aren't coding and they aren't management, and it's not clear how to balance your time or evaluate your success. Our guest this week is Jamie Hampton, a panelist on Greater Than Code podcast and a senior engineer at Agrilist. We talk about how to handle the change in responsibilities and perspective that comes from being promoted, even when you're still the same person that you were the previous week. We also talk specifically about hiring as a non-coding responsibility. Was there something in your career that came with new responsibilities that you didn't feel prepared for? Let us know at techdonewriteio slash 51 or on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore Before we start the show, I have one message. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. If you want me to come to your place of business and run a workshop on testing or legacy code or Rails and JavaScript or Agile Teams, that is a thing that can happen. Also, if you are in the Chicago area, be on the lookout for monthly public workshops that should be starting in January 2019. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com or hit the website at tablexi.com slash workshops. And now here's my conversation with Jamie. Jamie, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, I'm really happy to be on the show. I am a senior software engineer at Agrilist. Uh, Agrilist is an indoor agriculture industry tech startup in Brooklyn that I work for. Um, I'm a panelist on Greater Than Code. I don't know. I do a lot of things.
0: I guess what we are here to talk about is that you do a lot of things. (laughs)
1: True, true.
0: Because what we want to talk about is the new responsibilities that you have taken on as a, as a senior developer that are not actually coding, but also not what we would normally think of as a management role. So would you like to start by elaborating on that just a little bit?
1: That is exactly what I want to talk about. And I think that it's a struggle that I wasn't necessarily not, – not that I wasn't ready for it, but that I wasn't expecting – when I got promoted to senior developer, I was really, really excited, but I guess I didn't realize how different my job would end up being over time from before. And so, one of the big things is just like the kind of architectural and code responsibility that you have. Like, now when I'm working on projects, I feel like so much of the work is theoretical and I'll have like whole days when all I'm doing is like thinking about our code base and going from writing code to like thinking about code. Not that I didn't think about my code before, but thinking so actively and about it so much of the time makes me feel very unproductive because I feel like writing code and like how much code did I write? How many lines of code did I commit today? What is my, how green is my little box on GitHub today? Was such a benchmark of my productivity for so long that now I feel like I'm not doing anything ever. And like, (laughs) I'm very busy, but I feel like I'm not doing anything and it's hard.
0: Yeah, so let me let me ask a couple of questions to put a little bit of background on this because I think that there's some difference in this kind of thing depending on your organization. Uh, how many developers are on your team at AgriList?
1: We are small. We have five developers right now.
0: On paper, what kind of new responsibilities came with being a senior developer?
1: That's kind of a deceptive question in some ways because when I first got promoted, we were even smaller, and so. And I don't think this is a good or bad thing necessarily either way. I think it's just how it is. But I think in other and bigger organizations, there's more of a laid out, um, like, this is what a junior developer does, and this is what a mid-level developer does, and this is what a senior does. And like, it's kind of, there are categories more in that way. And we're trying to, as we're growing, we're trying to move towards that. But when I actually first got promoted to senior, I was the only developer briefly
0: (laughs) Are you still the only – well, then senior, junior, like you're you're you not the only senior.
1: I'm not the only senior now. But like I was the only person writing code at all at that point. So I, I felt kind of like people were like, oh, you got promoted to senior. And in fact, you got promoted to senior like pretty young. Like congratulations. And I was like, thanks. I mean, I feel like I won the Hunger Games because I'm the only one left right now. Um, and so my responsibilities didn't actually change at all at that point. It was like, you're going to be the only developer for a few months, and then we're going to hire some more people. And like we understand that that's a hard position for someone to be in. And we understand that you're taking on responsibility because of that. So like we're going to promote you. But a lot of the responsibilities that you see a senior developer taking on, like, you know. Um, overseeing projects and mentoring and stuff didn't happen to me until later because there was none of that stuff to even do at first
0: <laughs> I think that there's a whole separate issue about like suddenly finding yourself i guess you you became the only developer because other people left
1: yeah we we had been down to two just because we were very small this like we are an early stage startup we still are, and then somebody my boss. Left for another opportunity, and obviously we're like, we're going to hire to replace him as soon as possible. But it takes time,
0: right? Because there's a, there's a whole separate thing about being like the people left behind after other people leave, which can be challenging all by itself. Yeah, yeah I was once in a sort of an early stage startup that went from like a team of like twenty five developers with sixty people overall at one point, and eventually it was eight. <laughs> Um, it was not a healthy early stage startup. And that has you know all sorts of other, in addition to just having to pick up roles, like it's just weird psychologically.
1: It is weird. And now like we have been doing really well and we're, we've been hiring a lot again. We have a lot of new people and we have this whole new team that's great, but it's very weird being the only person that overlapped from kind of like the old team.
0: Yeah. You, you could say anything really. Cast, I could. Yeah. <laughs> this is how we used to do it. <laughs>
1: I should start making stuff up. That's a great idea. But also there are people like we've hired people more senior than me from like a, um, you know, job title, like experience in the industry kind of perspective. But like, there is no one at our company more senior than me from a, I've been here a long time and I understand this code base better than anyone else perspective, which is also a weird position to be in.
0: Yeah. I can, I can see that. that. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's a couple of things here. One of which is like, being in an organization that is small enough that you kind of have to be the, you know, the whoever's closest with the broom picks up the broom to sweep the floor kind of organization. So what kinds of things, uh, let, me, let me go back and talk about what you were saying about your productivity, because I suspect that this is something that a lot of people kind of deal with uh, as they move up into being senior. The idea that it's harder to evaluate your productivity because you don't have that code metric. Uh, you're not writing code, and so you're not doing the thing that can easily be easily evaluated. Like, were you expecting that, I guess? And how have you adjusted to it over the time that you've been a senior developer?
1: I guess I just didn't think about it. I th- I agree with you that I think this is something that affects a lot of people. I think that as developers, we have a lot of baggage in general about like how much code do you write. And I see that at all levels all the time with, like, a lot of people. Like, there's this real push. I mean, I was joking about how green is your little box, but, like, was I really joking? Because people really, like, post screenshots of their little boxes on Twitter and, like, brag about it. Like, people care about that kind of thing.
0: (laughs) Well, that being, like, a really common anti-pattern doesn't (laughs) –
1: yeah, 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 exactly. And like, logically, I can say, like, I know this doesn't matter. Or like, I know how many followers on like, how many followers do you have on Twitter? Like, it doesn't matter. But like, kind of matters, because like, <laughs> I've been, I've been told that it matters. And even though logically, I can say that it doesn't, like, I still emotionally feel that way about it a little bit.
0: What What have you sort of done to help to manage the feeling?
1: I'm still struggling with it. I mentioned, we were talking before the show about like, how am I going to tell people the answer when I don't know? It's still hard. But I think I'm very communicative with my coworkers, kind of, not just about what I'm doing, but about, like, how I'm feeling about it, which I think is, I mean, I guess it depends on your organization, like, how much people are, you know, open to talking about their feelings or whatever. But I really like talking about my feelings because I think that your feeling about what you're working on really affects, like how you're doing with that essentially. I I think it's hard to separate. Like if I am feeling negative about this project, that's because of XYZ or anything that's like affecting my work and my productivity on the project. And so it's been really helpful to be able to say like, hey, you know, I've been working on this stuff. I feel like I haven't gotten a lot done, but here is what I have been getting done and being able to kind of have a conversation with my my coworkers and my friends that like and say well what you've been thinking about here is really important and i think it's going to help with the project and i'm still fairly new at this so i'm still kind of like building up this backlog of successes in my mind i guess but I do think about that a lot. Like when I was writing more code, one of the things that I thought about a lot was like if I started working on a piece of code and I didn't know how to do it, I would get very overwhelmed. And I would try to remember back and be like, last time you tried to work on something and you felt overwhelmed because you didn't know how to do it and you felt like it was impossible. Like, was it really impossible or did you figure it out? And like 99% of the time I f- like figured it out and it was fine. So like, maybe this time will also be fine. And so I'm kind of working, trying to work on putting together a backlog of successes in that same way. Like last time you spent, you know, several days just thinking about how this architecture might work and you felt like you were wasting time. Was that actually helpful when it came time to like work on the project with everyone else? And was everyone really relieved that you had done that? Like, yes, (laughs) maybe it's going to be the same this time.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that happens is that you start having to see your victories at a sort of a more abstract level. Yeah. And this is a little bit of like sort of the the pyramid of moving towards senior developer. Like as a junior developer, you're very focused on the individual feature and you're very much writing code. But as you become more senior, you get more and more responsibility over the project as a whole. Right. The the smooth running or, or, or turbulence in the project as a whole becomes your responsibility. So you have to sort of take it, it's weird because you sort of have to take pride in things that don't happen.
1: <laughs> I never thought about it like that.
0: And it, it's very hard to see. Like, oh, like we picked a JavaScript framework and we did not spend like two weeks arguing with it <laughs> because we made the wrong choice. Like things just went smoothly. And my experience is that that a lot of that kind of intervention, like you have to sort of take pride in the lack of crisis, if that makes sense.
1: That totally makes sense.
0: And and it's kind of hard to see to think about it. in the way that like really good management is hard to tell. It, it's hard to to get a sense of how good a good manager is until you have a bad manager. <laughs> you, you sort of have to take pride in, in things that didn't happen. And and Things that happened, things that were boring because they went so smoothly. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: I I think that does make total sense to me. I think that when I was earlier in my career and I was writing code, it's not necessarily that the code itself was much less complex, but I felt like. Oftentimes I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do this task. And like, I understand what's happening in this individual small task. And therefore I can, you know, work in this little piece of the code. And now I feel like increasingly when I'm working in a piece of the code, it's like, I have to keep track of all these thoughts because I need to have a more comprehensive understanding of how it fits in with everything else.
0: You don't have a backstop. As the senior person, if you don't keep that in your head, nobody is going to.
1: Right, right. And I've been working on um, – this is something that had been happening at work recently. And I had been writing some code um, for a project that I wasn't actually leading on. But I was still like kind of helping a lot with the architecture and the thought with it. And I wrote some code and then I realized like I don't – understand why I'm writing this. Like, I don't understand what this is being used for. And I'm at a point where, like, I can't write something without understanding what it's going to be used for. Because I'm expected, you know, I'm rightfully expected to be able to think for myself and not necessarily code exactly what it says on the task card in Pivotal. They're expecting me to give them code that like makes sense and like works with our feature. And I can't do that if I don't understand why it's happening.
0: Right. Yeah. You have to understand the project goals in a different way.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I was feeling very overwhelmed because I'm like, I don't think my code is good. I don't think it's going to be usable in the way that it needs to be usable. And I don't know how to make it that way because I don't understand the use case for the, like, why we're changing the architecture in this way, essentially. I mean, what I did was I got on a call with, like, the other people who were working on the project and was like, listen, I don't have a thorough enough understanding of what we're doing and why, and I cannot continue until someone goes through it with me, until I understand it. Like we can't stop having this conversation until I'm on the right page. And that's like, a but that's a hard thing to do because I felt like, why am I wasting everyone's time on this project by not understanding it? But that's like a, some cost fallacy thing. Like if you can't admit that you're not on the right page, then you're never going to be able to get there.
0: <laughs> right. And as a senior person, you admitting that you're not on the right page makes it easier for the other people to admit it. <laughs>
1: It's a good point
0: when they are not on the right page, which is a very good thing.
1: Essentially, what I think about a lot is like the day I got like quote unquote promoted or whatever. I like I didn't become smarter on that day. I didn't become better at what I did on that day. If I had questions when I was, you know, a mid-level engineer, and now I'm still going to have the same questions. So I didn't automatically learn all that stuff I didn't know, and not every like nobody knows everything. But there's like baggage about like feeling like I should know it now. I think that I have.
0: Yeah, I can see that. That makes that that makes sense. Like you 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 don't change, but suddenly you're in a different context and you you have different problems.
1: So there's like an imposter syndrome about it.
0: Yeah, and I think that like no matter how you came into the field, whether you came in from a computer science program or you were self taught, or whether you came in from a boot camp, like that training involves coding,
1: That's and. True
0: you don't really get trained to be a like team lead in any meaningful way. Even if you continue in a CS degree and start taking like more advanced even software engineering classes, those are like trust me, like super academic and not like very applicable to the kinds of things that you would do in a real world project. And I think that like I had a weird career where I my first job out of grad school, I really was Hired to be a senior engineer, even though I was coming right out of grad school.
1: Interesting. And
0: uh, immediately wound up in all of these kind of project level things that I had no real compass or bearing on on how to do, and, and made you know a lot of mistakes. It was a weird project. There, there were mistakes to go around. Um,
1: that sounds really hard. It was. I mean, like
0: I didn't have anything to compare it to. I don't think. Yeah,
1: that's what I was going to say. It sounds really hard because, like, I mean, I haven't necessarily been trained, like. In a meaningful way on a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now either, but I have watched other people do it above me in my mm-hmm. career. And so if anything to fall back on, it's like, okay, well, I had a manager that did things this way and I thought it was good. So I can like emulate them in that way.
0: I mean, this is like a, it sounds, it's going to sound really obvious when I say it, or it's going to sound really dumb, but I was not prepared for like client meetings. Uh, you know, I came into a consulting shop or in your case, like product meetings, like
1: I, I worked at a consulting shop before I worked at AgriList and client meetings were very hard. I agree.
0: And and I was not prepared. I was not prepared in two ways. I think looking back on it, I was not prepared. Number one, in the sense that I had no idea, like what I was trying to get out of these meetings and what information that I could seek out or ask for that was going to be valuable or less valuable. And I also had no, like suddenly people are asking me questions. <laughs> about like whether things are feasible or how long they're going to take or you know what the best way to do something is. And I, I just had no frame of reference that was meaningful. And that was challenging. Uh, it also took me a while to control a, a little bit of a temper in client meetings.
1: I, I completely have the same problem. And um, I'm pretty sure that that's just something that I'm not very good at. And people people are so uncomfortable when you say that you're not good at something. Like they want to be like, no, I'm sure you're fine at it. And I'm like, no, I'm admitting that I'm not so good at this. Like, please just accept that I know this about myself. It,
0: it was really weird for me looking back on it because I don't normally think of myself as a person with a, a temper exactly. But there was particular ways that I got challenged in client meetings early on, especially early on. That I was not prepared for at all. And I like to have clients like challenge my expertise. Right. In ways that I was not, I guess I'd still get annoyed by it, but I'd kind of laugh it off now, I think. You know,
1: talking to non technical clients is like just wild in my experience because I find that like when I was doing client work, it was frustrating, but it also, I agree, like it. It was so absurd sometimes that it made me be like, okay, well, now I just have to laugh about this because clients will ask for like crazy stuff that's like literally impossible and be like, can you just do this real fast? And I'm like, oh, my God, you have no idea what you're asking for. But then they'll ask for something like really trivial and be like, do you think it's possible? And when I'm like, sure, I did it in five seconds. They're like, it's magic. I can't believe it. And it's just so interesting. Like, of course, like if you're not technical, of course you don't know the difference between something that's really trivial and something that's really hard. But like that was always really like pointed to me when that happened. I'd be like, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, And, and it's definitely one of the skills of client work to be able to like articulate when something is complicated and when something is easy. I once snapped at a client that it was easy for them to make that request because they weren't the ones that were going to be up at midnight doing it (laughs) and i had they made me apologize for that one
1: another thing i just was thinking about when i was talking about like admitting when you're not good at something i think that a real talent of like managing a team that i've like watched my manager do is having people do what they're good at which which also sounds really obvious and dumb but like I, know, I don't do client work now. We do have customers and only occasionally does someone from, the product, from our product team have to like talk directly to customers or at least an engineer from our product team has to talk directly to customers. And I was in a situation um, recently where like a customer really wanted to talk to me and I was like super stressed out about it. And I was like, I guess I'll talk to them because, you know, it's part of my job and I should suck it up. <laughs> but like, I obviously didn't want to do it and I was stressed out about it. And then my my boss had someone else do it. And I felt baggage about that. Like I felt like I whined so hard about one part of my job that it was taken away from me because I can't be trusted to like not whine about it. And I felt bad. And I expressed this to my boss and he was like, no, I just think that like someone else would be better at it than you. And like not in a mean way, but like you have admitted that you're not very good at this, like this kind of like talking professionally to clients You don't like doing it you were stressed out about it, you were ang- like you were having anxiety, you were miserable about it and like someone else could just do it and do a better job and not be stressed out about it. So why wouldn't I just have him do it instead? And that was really kind of eye-opening for me because of course, like he's totally right. Why should I be the one to do something I'm bad at that I don't want to do when someone else can just do it?
0: Where it gets tricky, I think, is when you want people to get better at the thing we want people to grow. You want people to take on things, but, but it is tricky because there's going to be a a point where they're not going to be good at it or they're going to be uncomfortable with it. Um, And, and, and putting people in a situation where they can be sort of incrementally successful at a new thing is very challenging.
1: We moved everybody's responsibilities around recently and it's just better. Like we just matched better people with things that they enjoy and are good at like, I used to do deploy. I was in charge of the deploy process for like a long time. And then that got taken away from me and given to actually it got given to someone that I was mentoring. So I was really torn because I was like, I'm really happy and proud of my mentee for like taking on this new responsibility But then part of me was also like, was I doing a bad job at it? Like when you take, when you get a responsibility taken away from you, it's like a little bit anxiety inducing. But then I got put on hiring and I've been really enjoying doing hiring. And the person who used to do hiring has like expressed to me, like, I am so glad that I don't have to deal with that anymore. And that was also kind of like eye opening. Like it made me realize like there's a real skill to giving people responsibilities that they're like well suited for.
0: And excited about. Like I think it makes a big deal when people are excited to do the, the things Definitely. that do. Okay. So tell me about hiring. I've also spent some time running hiring. What were you expecting it to be like and, and 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 then what did it turn out to be?
1: I guess I didn't know what I was expecting it to be like at all, but I really enjoy doing it. And the reason that I enjoy doing it is because I really like being the first person from my company that somebody talks to.
0: I completely get that. That was easily my favorite part about running hiring.
1: And I I feel like people, I get very anxious about a lot of things. I'm just like a very anxious person. And interviewing is like hugely anxiety inducing from when like you are looking for a job, like I'm aware of this. And so it's been kind of cool to be in this position where I'm like, hey, you know, don't worry. It's pretty casual. I'm just casual about it. We can both be casual about it. I'm nervous too, because giving interviews is not my favorite part of hiring, Um, but I've been getting a lot better at it. And I think that like, at first I was like, they're going to know that I'm nervous. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, does it matter if they know that I'm nervous? But I actually found that like, when the person I'm interviewing realizes that I'm a little bit nervous, it's like calming for them. Yeah.
0: I think it was, it was, it was. Very important and satisfying for me to be able to have in, people we were interviewing come through and have them like genuinely believe that they were the most important person in our office for the day <laughs> and, and to, to try and make that this like really stressful process less stressful. Like, right. you know, can I get you coffee? Can I get you water? Can I bust your lunch dishes? Like anything I can do to make this easier for you, I'm going to do because that's the environment we want to have. Mm-hmm. One thing I did find about it, though, is that it's really time consuming. I don't know if that's also your experience,
1: yes, like but getting back to kind of what I was saying about like feeling unproductive is when i when I first started doing hiring, I felt like I was taking so long and it felt like I was wasting time. like I felt like I would go into resumes and then look at them and be doing stuff. and then, like an hour later, I would look at the clock. it's been an hour and I'm like, what did I just do for an hour? <laughs>
0: Yeah, evaluating resumes, writing responses to people, like all of that kind of administrative stuff, if you wind up being the person doing it, it is very hard to like meaningfully automate. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore it's it's very time consuming.
1: Yeah, I was like worried that people would be like, "Well, what is Jamie even doing today?" And like again, I guess I just this is the kind of thing that I feel like if you just let it fester in you, it will like rot and you'll just have this, Like maybe it's just me, but like, this crazy anxiety about it. I'm sure it's not just me, actually. I take that back. And so I was like, look, I'm trying to do hiring. It's taking all this time and I still feel like I'm falling behind on it. And like, it feels like a waste of time. And other people at my company were like, oh my God, like it's not... It's not a waste, like, please don't think you're wasting time by doing this like very important thing. And like hearing someone else say that, I think is like really important. Like it sounds silly, but I will, I also work remote. And so all of our hiring is also remote (laughs) and I've worked remote for a long time and I'm very comfortable with it. But I do feel like there's this fear that like, if people aren't looking at me, they think I'm slacking off, even if I'm not. And I'm sure nobody feels that way about me. (laughs) But I still have that fear. And so I was having that fear about hiring. Like I would fall into resumes for a while and then no one would hear from me and be like, what's Jamie doing? But I don't think that's true. And I think the only way to like internalize that that's not true is to like have people tell you that it's not.
0: Yeah. I don't normally work remote, but I do definitely appreciate the idea of like, Will people see this as as valuable time? Am I spending the right amount of time on this? Am I spending too much right. am I spending too much time on each resume? Am I spending not enough time on each resume? Because <laughs> then you start get, I, I don't know, like this is turning into more of a hiring thing, but like you you look at a resume and you see there at least from us, we would get patterns of unsuitable resumes. It was just clear that somebody had like gone into Glassdoor or something and was like hitting all of the five star companies in Chicago, whatever they did. <laughs> So we would get like resumes for people who wanted to do like enterprise Java stuff. We don't do that at all. Right. But then you kind of feel bad for like rejecting a resume out of hand, even though it's completely unsuitable. (laughs) At, At least in my case, like one of the tricky parts about hiring was dealing with the fact that you had to, for the good of the organization, not be a soft touch about letting people through the process.
1: That's totally true. And I think that like, it's like an uncomfortable power differential to be like, I have power over like someone else's life and career. And that feels like a lot of responsibility.
0: Yes. And yes. And I was, and I am generally, it took a while to be comfortable with it. If I ever got really comfortable with it. And my tendency, especially when I first started doing resume stuff was like, I am going to err on the side of bringing people in. Like we do a terrible job of evaluating resumes. You can't really evaluate people from resumes. So, and, and the first part of our process is just like having somebody do a quick phone screen or come in for lunch. Like it's very low impact. So I would be a very soft touch for that and, and a reasonably soft touch for the next part, which would be like a code sample. But eventually like other people have to evaluate the code samples or other people have to start doing these lunch meetings. And if you start, if I started having too many of them that people were like questioning, (laughs) then people would come back to me and be like, you know, you have to stop pushing this many people through the process. Like we just can't, we just don't have the bandwidth to deal with it. And at one point I I had enough people come to, I had, had, we were right when I first started taking over hiring, we had, we were hiring for an entry level position and I had enough people go through full day interviews that I'd pushed through the process to a full day interview that like I started to get almost open rebellion (laughs) about how much time people were spending doing interviews.
1: That makes sense. And, like, an entry-level position, I think, is even harder from that perspective because, like, there's so many people that could probably be good at it. But it's hard to look at someone who is, like, brand new into the industry's resume and know what kind of experience they have or what it's going to be like to work with them or what their code's going to be like. It's definitely hard. And I found that, like, as like we were saying earlier about, like, training – like, I took over hiring. Like, I don't, I've never had any training in how to do hiring. I think that I'm pretty good at it. And I think that part of the reason that I'm pretty good at it is that I just like people. Like, I'm an extroverted person and I like chatting with people. And we do, um, we do pairing interviews, um, which are really fun, actually. I really like doing them, particularly with, with kind of more junior people. We've been using the terms junior and mid level and senior a lot in this. I don't know. Those terms are so hard, like loaded and hard. I'm using them because like people use them, and there's some sort of meaning attached to them. But I feel like I can't keep using them without making some sort of comment about like, like what does junior versus mid level even mean?
0: We stopped using junior internally.
1: That's good. I think
0: we have the the levels here are like associate consultant, consultant, and senior consultant. Which I don't know whether that's better or not, but that's what we do.
1: But anyway, what I was saying is, like, I I didn't have any training at doing hiring. And when I first started doing it, like, we have a process that we kind of came up with together. And I actually feel pretty confident with our process. And I've gotten some, like, good feedback from people I've interviewed about it, which feels, which is, like, job satisfaction central or whatever. But one thing that had been happening at first um, was that we, like, made it through the, all the way through the process with people and made them an offer. And then they turned down the offer. Which is something that happens because, you know, not everybody takes every job offer they get. Like, I know this logically, but like it happened enough times in a row that I was feeling like, what am I doing wrong? That we are unable to hire anyone under my supervision. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that partially it was me projecting like things that I can't control about people's decisions onto myself as like a personal failure. And I think that it was partially the timing thing. When I was struggling with the process, when I was still first learning it and I was, it wasn't efficient, it takes someone so long to go through the process. Maybe they're losing interest or maybe they're having second thoughts about, you know, our process and our company or maybe, you know, they followed another opportunity. And by the time they get finished with our press, they've already taken another author, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, Becoming more efficient at it definitely helped, but like, I, I was definitely feeling very low about it there for a while because I was like, I got this new responsibility and I was told that they thought I would be good at it and that's why I was given it and I like doing it. I don't want them to take it away from me, but I feel like I'm not doing a good job and that's like really kind of hard to grapple with.
0: Yeah, I totally see that. It took a, a fairly long time to hire for our first associate position for a couple of different reasons. And it's definitely involves being invested in a bunch of things you can't control, (laughs) including the reactions of the other people at my own company. Like when I would get really excited about a candidate who other people were not excited about, that's challenging too. All right. So you're spending all this time hiring. You Uh, spend time in meetings or doing architecture, You know, something that I've seen in myself and I've certainly seen in other people that get in that situation is they start to wonder whether they're keeping up with current coding stuff, whether they're going to be able to keep up with new things.
1: I definitely have anxiety about that. I feel like I worry that I'm losing my edge. And I think it's partially because I'm just not in the code as high of a percentage of time that I used to be. But I think it's also that I'm working on harder stuff. And so, like, I used to feel like, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a software engineer and I'm pretty good at my job and I do a good job with my code. I figure out problems and I solve them and I write code that's pretty elegant or whatever, however ben- you want to benchmark, like, writing good code. And now I feel sometimes like, oh, my, I don't know about my code. I'm worried about it. And I think it's because, like, I'm doing – kind of like what I was getting at earlier with like, I can't really work unless I understand everything about it. Like I'm doing stuff that's really hard. And because of it, I don't get that like immediate gratification of like, I wrote this and I did a good job in the same way as when I was writing stuff that was easier. And because I'm, it just doesn't feel the same way. I don't feel as good at what I'm doing as I used to. And I have to remind myself like, well, do you think that you like suddenly got worse? At your job, or do you think that you're just when you're leveling up and learning new things, it gets harder? I mean, logically, I, I've s- I talked a lot about like logically, I know that this is true, but emotionally, I still have baggage about it, which is kind of like <laughs> the core of all of this in some ways.
0: It's hard to let go of skills that you think of as being like very, that you pers- very personally identify with. That's a great point. At one point, I would have considered myself like a professional-level Java programmer, but I haven't done it in a long time, and I'm probably not anymore, uh, at least not without a few weeks of like refreshing. And yeah, you have to kind of remind yourself that you're doing something new with that time and with the same like basic skill set.
1: I saw a talk one time by Carrie Miller, and she was talking about like when you learn a new language, this like curve of like, how much longer it takes you to do stuff because, and like, like it sounds obvious when you say it, like, because you're doing it in a new language, like duh. But when you're, when you're learning something new and you're so used to being extremely proficient, it can be hard emotionally to just be less proficient. And so it's kind of like, there's a quote from adventure time and sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something.
0: Yeah. I think that that's true. I think there's like a whole, Ira Glass, like paragraph level rant about how hard it is to become, to have taste and try to pick up something new. You know, when, when you have the taste to recognize what something good, this is not just coding, but in anything, to recognize what something good looks like, but not quite the skill to produce something good, that that can be really discouraging.
1: The thing I like so much about the quote is that it's not that like sucking at something is the first step to like being great. Like you're still only sort of good at something at the end, which is like, of course, like there's steps and then you suck less and then you suck a little less and then you feel like you're getting pretty good and then you get better.
0: Yeah. Then you're sort of good and then you're sort of better. Yeah. (laughs) Totally recognize that. I keep, I have like this like terrifying, didn't they do a thing with like Mark Zuckerberg where they set up a thing where he was going to commit something to the Facebook code base for like press and he didn't know what he was doing. Like it had evolved. So,
1: I don't know about this, but I believe it.
0: I w- it's too good to check, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of story where they had set up a, a press event where he was going to commit something to the code base and, and he didn't, you know, the tools had evolved to a point where he didn't know what to do. And,
1: That's a, a wildly bad press event anyway. Like,
0: <laughs> Sure. I don't know right, who thought that
1: button. was a good idea. Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're going to watch Mark Zuckerberg push a button. Yeah, It's going to be very <laughs> exciting. I'm going to push some code. Stand back, everybody. Yeah. So, uh, Jamie, we are unfortunately, I think, to the edge of time here. Jamie, where can people reach you online if they want to talk more about the new things that they're trying in their jobs?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Jamie Bash. Jamie's spelled J-A-M-E-Y, Bash, B-A-S-H. Actually, people think that Bash is my last name. I've gotten mail for Jamie Bash before. Um, it's also not because I'm really good at bash shell, so don't ask me about that. Um, uh, jbbash.com is my website. I post articles there. I actually do um, comics reviews, so if you like comics, you should check out my website, and it has videos of my my conference talks.
0: I would definitely go check that out, and of course, the Greater Than Code podcast. Yes, of course. And the and I'll plug the Greater Than Code Patreon so that you can be on their excellent Slack community too.
1: That would be great. We have really good conversations there.
0: It is true. I think that's it. That's everything. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was really great.
0: Tech Den Right is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can find Table XI on Twitter at Table XI. You can find Mandy at the Ruby Rep and you can find me at Noel Rapp. Tech Done Right can be found at TechDoneRight.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. And of course, if you like the show, tell a friend, tell a colleague, tell your social media network, tell me. All of those things would be very, very helpful, as would a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps people find the show. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right.